Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Well, the annual flu season is back, and this season's version happens to be a doozy. Health officials have taken the step of calling the sharp increase in flu cases an influenza epidemic. So this week we're asking, what should I know about this flu season? Hi, Allison. Welcome back to The Dose. Hi, Brian. Is it reasonable to assume that you've gotten your flu shot? It is reasonable to assume I've had my flu shot. Were you one of the first in line? Uh, No, I don't think so. We have this really nice thing at the hospital where the flu cart comes around and you just have to book them. So I I, I always get a little bit anxious when I wait. But, you know, uh, sometime in the second week, they found time for us and they turn right up at your door, which is really nice. Did you get a chocolate bar? Uh, I was offered a chocolate bar, but I did not take it. Not because I didn't want a chocolate bar, but because I felt I shouldn't. (laughs) Okay, very well. Uh, Before we begin, why don't you give us a hi, my name is. Tell us what you do and where you do it. Just ad lib. Hi, my name is Alison McGear, and I'm an adult infectious disease physician at Sinai Health System in Toronto. You are modest because you happen to be one of Canada's experts in influenza. Well, there's a smallish group of us who really care as much about influenza as I do. It's true. First of all, why did the Public Health Agency of Canada declare a flu epidemic? Well, you know, we do declare flu season every year, um, which is just a marker for physicians and and other healthcare providers to know that we've switched from kind of the usual winter mix of viruses that start in September, October. Um, And the reason for doing that is twofold. The first is that once you're into flu season, you start to see emergency department visits and hospital visits go up. And so hospitals need to be ready to absorb the increase in cases. And the second thing is that you also can start to think about whether you want to use antivirals for treatment as as the proportion of cases of respiratory illness that are influenza goes up. So, but, but, you know, the definition of epidemic is fairly precise. So, so are we just talking about the, the, the start of the flu season or has it actually reached proportions that we would call an epidemic? Well, so we're not going to know until afterwards. This is the thing about flu, okay, which is that flu comes pretty much every winter, but when it comes and how bad it is, we never know ahead of time. So this flu season is early, okay, not impossibly early, um, but definitely early, and it's increasing pretty quickly. And the key question that we don't have the answer to is, are we going to have a season like Australia, where the season was really early, but it went, came up and went down? It didn't last that long. It wasn't terrible. Or are we going to have a really horrible flu season where it goes up and it stays up for a while and we still have a lot of it over Christmas and New Year's and it doesn't come down until February? Either of those is possible and there's just no way of knowing ahead of time what's going to happen to us. Okay, fair enough. But we do know that it started earlier than, than typical flu seasons. So why are we seeing this big increase early? You know, it's really tempting to speculate, but the truth is sometimes flu seasons are early. So it's possible that this is just an early flu season. 
I think we have a tendency to think that it's early because we haven't had influenza for two years. One of the really impressive things about the pandemic is that we never believed before the pandemic that you could control influenza transmission. And it still may be true that you can't control pandemic influenza transmission. But very clearly, during the pandemic, we demonstrated that masking and distancing and maybe hand hygiene as well didn't just reduce the transmission of influenza. It actually stopped the transmission of influenza. So right up until the stage where we took our masks off, we didn't have influenza transmission at all. That's very impressive. Oh, it, 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 it's mind-boggling. Okay, it's really, it, it was completely, I think, unimaginable. When it started to go down in the beginning of March, I was thinking, well, you know, we, we've moved all our reagents to COVID testing, so we're not testing for flu. Maybe that's what it is. But really, it's, it's just about we know now that you can stop seasonal influenza transmission very effectively. We might not want to do what you have to do in order to stop it. Um, but the fact that we know we can stop it is a, is a really significant advance. You have already kind of answered this question, but I will ask it. What do we know about the experience in Australia that gives us some clues as to how long this particular flu season is expected to last? So the truth is not much. Right? Flu does what it wants to do pretty much. And, and we just have to live with it. So the flu season in Australia was early, um, but not awful. And it was a, it was a, a relatively speaking, a short, sharp flu season. It is sometimes true that the Australian experience is what we get, but it's not always true. And we really don't know enough to know wh whether it's going to translate that way this year. So we're really, um, th there's still a lot of things we don't know about this flu season. We do know, however, um, that it's an H3N2 season. And so far, we've not seen a really significant drift away from the, the antigens that are in the vaccine. Um, so that's good news. Um, and we do have some data from Australia and actually from Chile this year, which is a nice addition that says that the vaccine is it, what the Australians called is the low end of moderate. So it, it's not great protection, but it's kind of solid protection against influenza. Again, you know, one of our big complaints about flu vaccine totally justified is it may be a lot better than nothing. It is a lot better than nothing. But it's also not great. And, and that's what's playing out this year. Much better than nothing, but not great protection. So you've mentioned that it's, uh, that what we're seeing so far in Canada is H3N2, which is a form of influenza A. Are we seeing any influenza B? Uh, really very little. So you, you, you always see a little tiny bit of influenza B, but at the moment, everything is influenza A and all of the A is H3N2. Okay. How does the spread of influenza compare to the uh, the spread or transmission of COVID? So it depends on kind of when you're talking about in pandemics. So if we're talking about COVID now and flu now, the easiest comparison is what happens in households. So in an in an average household where you know half of people are vaccinated, if somebody introduces influenza into the household, there's a, somewhere between a 15 and a 20% chance 
that any other member of the household will get influenza. If you introduce COVID into a household these days, um, as long as it's been more than four or five months since people last got their vaccine, the COVID infection rate is probably about twice that, something on the order of 35 to 40%. So just at the moment, kind of where we are with vaccines and, and with experience, obviously, you know, we've lived with flu for all of your life, right? So much longer than for COVID. And so it's not surprising that even though flu is pretty highly transmissible and susceptible people, it's not as transmissible in our society as COVID is at the moment. So that's interesting. How would wearing masks in the house uh, change those numbers? So the correct answer is we don't know. There is some evidence from attempts before COVID of people wearing masks in households. Um, and, and there is some evidence that you reduce the transmission of influenza a little bit. But transmission in households is probably not where the benefit is. The problem in households is that you may put a mask on in your household, but you take it off to eat with your family, you take it off to sleep, presumably, sometimes with other members of your family. You have a lot of close contact with other members of your family. So masking in households is, unless you're really focused on the distancing as well, is probably not as useful as masking in the general community. And it's the whole, the, the, the thing about masking is it's not about protecting yourself. It's about protecting other people. So it only works if it's a collaborative venture in which lots of people wear masks. Having said that, it's, I think, true this year that we are seeing significantly fewer flu outbreaks in long-term care homes than we usually see for the, the amount of influenza that's in the community. And we're seeing really pretty small numbers of older adults being hospitalized with RSV, considering how much RSV there is in kids. And those, I think, are both signs that the distancing and the masking that we're currently using much less than we used to be, but still, you know, many older people are being careful about, you know, who they're out to dinner with and how big their parties are, and where they're wearing masks. And that really does look like it's having an impact. More evidence that those infection control procedures that have been well ingrained in our society have, have are continuing to benefit uh, people who adhere to them. Now, you mentioned RSV. We've been hearing a lot about RSV. Um, what are some of the key differences between RSV and the flu? Okay, so let's start with RSV. Obviously, they're both respiratory viruses, but RSV is an infection that we traditionally worry most about uh, in small children. And that's because it causes inflammation when the first couple of times you get infected with it as a child, causes inflammation in the small airways in your lungs, a disease called bronchiolitis. And in kids, because those airways are very narrow, uh, particularly in premature kids and children who are under one year of age, that disease can be very severe. So we worry a lot about RSV in very young children. And then what happens with RSV is you keep getting reinfected over your lifetime. But most of the time when you're an older child or adult, you're not even symptomatic with it. And if you are symptomatic with it, it's just a cold, not a big deal. Influenza causes disease in everybody. 
but it's most likely to cause hospitalization in young kids, again, because they respond so strongly to infection because their airways are narrow, and in older and immunocompromised adults. Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. Um, You started to mention how effective the flu vaccine was, I believe, in Chile. What do we know about the effectiveness here in Canada? Uh, nothing yet, because we haven't had as much flu disease. You know, in, or- in order to do early season estimates, you have to have enough people who are part of the surveillance studies that people do across Canada. The, the first of these to get results usually is uh, Canada's Sentinel Surveillance System, which is outpatients with influenza-like illness, coordinated by a scientist called Danuta Skaronsky at the BC Centre for Disease Control. And usually when the season starts in early December, usually we have some estimates of efficacy by the second or third week of January. So this year, the season started in early November. So we can hope that sometime, maybe just before the Christmas holidays, we might have some estimates of efficacy. Got it. How effective is the high dose? Now, this is a more general question, but from from past years, how effective is the high dose flu vaccine aimed at seniors and people who are immunocompromised compared to the regular dose? So this year, you may notice in Ontario, we've got two, and, and in British Columbia, two different what are called enhanced vaccines for older adults, the high dose and the adjuvanted vaccine. Uh, and the evidence at the moment looks like both of them are better than the regular flu vaccine, not dramatically better, but maybe relatively 15 or 20% better, enough that in the United States, the CDC has recommended that all older adults get one or the other of these enhanced vaccines, and enough that across Canada, we're starting to see governments funding either the high-dose vaccine or the adjuvanted vaccine on both. So the, the most important thing to do for older adults is still to get a flu vaccine, any flu vaccine. But if you're going to get a flu vaccine as an older adult, it's almost certainly a little bit better to get either the high dose or the adjuvanted. You've talked about uh, some of the typical symptoms of RSV and how they change with different ages. What are the key symptoms of the flu? Well, you know, it, it, the, the flu is really frustrating because it, it on average, it's more severe than other respiratory infections. So we talk about influenza-like illness and influenza-like illness is characterized by relatively sudden onset, by relatively high fever, by that feeling that you've just been hit by a truck and you can't move for two days. Some of you will be listening to this and saying, oh, that sounds like COVID and you'd be right. Okay, so, so there's a lot of overlap. So we think of influenza as causing those symptoms, but in fact, in healthy adults, most influenza really presents as just a cold. So you can't, when you get sick, distinguish between whether you have COVID or influenza or RSV or enterovirus or seasonal coronaviruses. They all cause a similar syndrome. It's just that influenza tends to cause more severe disease. And these days, COVID also tends to cause more severe disease. Okay. How long do you need to stay home if you've got the flu? 
Again, judgment call, okay? You you probably are infectious to other people for four or five days, but you're actually most infectious either the day before you get sick or the day you get sick. So people's recommendations vary a little bit. You'll protect people from most transmission if you stay home for the first three days. You'll maybe do a bit better if you can stay home for five. So it it you know that there's no absolute answer to it. How effective is the medication oseltamivir, also known as Tamiflu, against the flu? It really depends on the circumstances. So if you're exposed to flu in an outbreak, say, Tamiflu is very effective at preventing you from getting sick. The problem with using it preventively is it's not very often that you can define an outbreak and, and you can find people who are at high risk. So, so we use Tamiflu all the time in outbreaks in hospitals and in long-term care homes, and it's very effective at protecting people from disease and stopping outbreaks. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that you're going to take for six weeks in flu season so that you don't get the flu, right? So it, it has somewhat limited use for prevention. For treatment, the problem is that for most people, as soon as you, you know, as soon as the virus starts to multiply, your body's immune system is kicking in. And so once you've been sick for more than two or three days, your body's already controlling the virus and the extra Tamiflu doesn't do much good. If you know you have influenza and you've only been sick for six hours, Taking oseltamivir or Tamiflu works really well um, to reduce how well you're going to be. But it's really hard to know within six hours of getting symptoms that you've got flu. So mostly we use influenza either for prevention, the Tamiflu for prevention and outbreaks. Well, say you know you've had the, the flu, uh, flu symptoms for 24 hours. Yep. And, and you go to your doctor, nurse practitioner, urgent care center, emergency department, and they offer you a prescription uh, for Tamiflu. Should you take it? So it depends. Okay. Uh, to me, it depends on two things. The, the first is, so let's say you're a healthy 30-year-old. Okay. If you get offered oseltamivir in the first 12 hours, you want to be reasonably sure you have flu uh, and you're going to benefit from it. Otherwise, you're just you know spending money and taking drugs that aren't any good. At peak flu season, okay, so if you're in the middle of a really busy flu season and you have a temple 38.5 and you're feeling really miserable, there's about a 75% chance that you have influenza and taking oseltamivir is a good idea, okay? Not essential, you'll still recover, um, but it will make you, you know, if you have an exam coming up in a couple of days or some reason you want to be well, um, a good reason to take it. If you're at the edges of flu season and not at peak, if you don't have a fever, um, if you're not feeling really sick, all of those things are things that reduce the percentage. And in that setting, you really want to make sure that you have influenza before you take a drug for influenza, um, you know, because the oseltamivir doesn't work for other viruses. The second proportion of people who you might want to prescribe oseltamivir for when they aren't quite as sick are people who have, um, who are frail, who are older, who have serious underlying comorbidities, where flu can do a lot more damage. We talked about it at the top, but I want to come back to this to underscore the point about the benefits of, of, of masking. 
And, and we've heard a lot of talk in the news, and certainly we're talking about it in hospitals, in emergency departments, uh, and other parts of the hospital that the tridemic has inundated us, and especially emergency departments. It led to calls to bring back masks. In scientific terms, how effective is masking, especially indoors, at slowing down the transmission of the flu? So, you know, a piece of that is we don't know exactly because, of course, we didn't just introduce masking, right? We we introduced masking and distancing and not having as many contacts and everything else at the same time. Uh, and And that worked, as you've pointed out, for every respiratory virus except Interestingly, enteroviruses, which I would have thought would be the virus that was most affected. So uh, th there's there's a lot that we've learned about this. Having said that, the, to me, one of the most interesting things was last winter, if you remember when we were coming up to Christmas, um, things were looking pretty good. Delta virus, you know, Delta caused severe disease, but there wasn't very much of it. And we were all kind of looking forward to the Christmas holidays. And you could see... In the three weeks of December, you could see the flu season starting. Very clearly, we were going to have a flu season. And then right at the end of December, we got overwhelmed with Omicron. We went back, not to everything, right? We, we opened schools after a couple of weeks. We had limits, but not as many limits as we've had before. So we didn't go back to lockdown, but we did go back. And when we did that, influenza vanished again, okay? You see it drop right off again. And it didn't come back until the last week of March when we took indoor masks off. So we had progression over the end of February and March. And the last step was we took masks off. And the moment we took masks off, we got the end of the flu season. So that to me is the best evidence we have at the moment that that level of masking um, is substantially effective at reducing the transmission of influenza. But it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see from an academic perspective how things sort out this season and what we think at the end of it, the specific impact uh, of indoor masking is. I think it will be substantial. And I think we, we will want after this year to have a, a, a really thoughtful and careful discussion about what the benefit of masks are and, and when we should be using them. Because I think, I think they will be a useful tool in some circumstances, not, you know, not for everyone, not for everywhere, not forever. Um, but in specific circumstances, we may be able to introduce substantial mitigation of influenza with masking. It's good news. It's a, uh, it's, it's a, uh, uh, confirmation of a substantial benefit to the infection control procedures that, that we have been trying to follow, and uh, hopefully people will continue to follow as we make our way through this flu season. Dr. Allison McGeer, thank you so much for speaking with me. Nice to talk to you, Brian. Take care. You too. Dr. Allison McGeer is an infectious disease physician at Sinai Health System in Toronto. Here's your dose of smart advice. The flu season has arrived earlier than usual. There are suggestions that it's more severe than in recent years, but we really won't know for sure until the flu season has come and gone. If we follow the pattern established recently by Australia during its flu season, then we'll have a sharp increase in cases followed by a sharp decline. The flu has arrived at a time when we're also seeing higher than usual rates of RSV infections, not to mention COVID. In general, the flu can cause severe illness in infants, frail seniors, and people who are immunocompromised. 
RSV affects infants most severely, although frail seniors can also become seriously ill. Flu experts believe we enjoyed lower rates of infection during the first two years of the pandemic because more people were masking, washing hands, and keeping physically distant from one another. As more people stop doing those things, it's not surprising that we're seeing lots of people getting the flu. The symptoms of influenza include fatigue, cough, sore throat, muscle aches, fever, chills, nasal congestion, headache, and loss of appetite. But for some people, the symptoms are not that different from a cold. If you get the flu, you are most likely to infect others for four to five days starting the day before your first symptoms. Therefore, you should stay home for at least three days after you become symptomatic. When you return to work, wear a mask to protect others. For fever, headache, or muscle aches and pains, take acetaminophen or ibuprofen. The antiviral medication oseltamivir or Tamiflu may shorten the duration of symptoms if you start taking it within hours of your first symptoms. We don't yet have the data, but there are indications that this year's flu shot provides moderate protection against influenza. We'll know more about that later this year. One thing flu watchers say that bears emphasis. Since the pandemic, infection control precautions like masking, hand washing, and physical distancing have been shown to dramatically reduce the spread of the flu. Long-term care homes, which continue to do those things, have so far not seen flu outbreaks. If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions answered, our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please rate us five stars so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Stephanie Dubois. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.